Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So back four years ago in 2016, uh, Charlie Sykes, after 25 years as a conservative radio talk show host, stepped down from that gig. He's also a well-respected and well-published author. He's the author of nine books, A Nation of Victims, Dumbing Down Our Kids, The Hollow Men, The End of Privacy, A Nation of Moochers, most recently, How the Right Lost Its Mind, which came out right after 2016, in 2017. But in 2016, he wrote a piece for the New York Times titled Where the Right Went Wrong, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. He talks about conservatives actually believe things about free trade, balanced budgets, character, and respect for constitutional rights. I have been wanting for some time to have a thoughtful conversation with a uh, Republican or former Republican about how the Republican Party can go forward. And I'm very happy that Charlie is with us today. He's the founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark, T-H-E, thebulwark.com is the website, a, a news site. Charlie, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. First of all, are you still a Republican? No. No, because I don't really know what it means other than being part of the Trump cult, and I'm definitely not part of the Trump cult. Yeah, I know I get that. I grew up in a Republican household. My dad was a solid member of the Republican Party. I went door to door with my dad in 1964. I was 13 years old uh, to campaign for Barry Goldwater. The year before that, my dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting and I got John Stormer's book, None Dare Call It Treason. And I read it and I was terrified that the communists were coming to to take out the State Department. You know, four years later, three years later, I was, you know, getting arrested in East Lansing in anti-war protests with the SDS. So that was my transformation. And I've been pretty much the left ever since. But I certainly understand the old Republican point of view, my dad's Eisenhower Republican point of view, who actually supported labor rights, you know, supported Social Security. They hadn't bought into this Charles Koch kind of libertarianism. And they just wanted things to go a little more slowly. And we're, uh, you know, not screaming racist. My father was not a racist. I don't understand how, how the Republican party can reinvent itself given kind of the subtext to so much of what's going on before. Let me just go through this and then give you as much time as you'd like to respond to it. Balanced budgets, 
which the Republicans have been talking about forever. I mean, if you go back to 1976, June Wininsky wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal called The Two Santa Claus Theory, in which he said that when Republicans are in office, when they hold the White House, they should spend money like drunken sailors, drive up the national debt so that when Democrats come into office, they can then scream about, you know, balanced budgets and the national debt to force cuts in social spending, which is exactly what happened. Reagan tripled the national debt from $800 billion to $2.4 trillion, and every Republican president has exploded it. Um, so it, it's like there was never really a care about balanced budgets on the Republican side. Um, character, I think, stands alone. I'm, I'm going through your list from your New York Times piece. Mm-hmm. Character, balanced budgets, respect for constitutional rights and free trade. And the respect for constitutional rights historically was mostly the Tenth Amendment allowing states to have segregated schools and things. I mean, it, it, looking back on the Republican Party in the 50s, 60s, 70s, was it an illusion you know, this is painful for me to listen to all of this stuff. That's a great question. I've been going back and forth on this conversation with Stu Stevens, who has a new book called uh, It's All a Lie, whether or not it was all a Potemkin village, whether it was all fake. Look, I think there were people who actually believed in that. I think there were people who were quite sincere. I remember when I was on the air in Wisconsin, I probably had Paul Ryan on my show more than 100 times talking about the danger of the deficit and the danger of the national debt. And then you look at what they've actually done, and and, and it's a legitimate question. Was this all just simply a kind of tribal virtue signaling? Because there's nothing left of many of those things. And you wonder whether or not these ideas were really just sort of a thin crust over something else that was going on. And, And I'll be honest with you. I still wrestle with all of this. I I look at people that I've known for 20 or 30 years and I thought were decent, intelligent, principled people and watch one after another how they've conformed themselves to Trumpism. And it's an extraordinary story on a human level, but it's also a dangerous story on a political level. So, Charlie, I agree. And I think back and my dad has you know, passed away a decade ago or more, but I'm wondering, was he fooled? I mean, you know, was an entire generation of Republicans fooled by basically, you know, racists and, and right wing billionaires? And I'm increasingly thinking yes, which raises the question. It's a good thing to have an opposition party. I mean, that dynamism is the key to any functioning republic. And I want to have a Republican Party that can be the opposition to the Democratic Party that has some integrity and that actually, in the course of debates, it's one of the reasons I debate conservatives on this program constantly, um, in the course of those debates, issues get, they become more vivid. You know, you, you begin to understand yeah. them in, in multidimensional ways. How can, what, what would the principles be of a reinvented Republican Party, setting aside all this old rhetorical BS? By the way, I am skeptical about whether or not this party can can reinvent itself. I think it's going to be a very, very long time. It will not snap back to any sort of reasonableness just simply because Donald Trump has left. I think we've got a real voter problem out there. So the other thing is, before I go into your question about the, the whole issue of, of racism, you know, I think that a lot of us knew that it was out there, and you may consider this to be naive. We, we, we knew that there was the drunk at the end of the bar. We knew about the bigoted uncle and everything. But we thought that those were the fringe characters. This was maybe a recessive gene, but it wasn't. There were some of us who thought, you know, maybe Jack Kemp and somebody like that, you know, might represent a, a new, more compassionate conservatism. I think that was the illusion. And I think it's one of those cases where 
the people, you know, the, the best lacking all conviction while the worst were full of passion and intensity. Because right now, there's no question about the Republican Party. I can't tell you what percentage of Republican voters are in fact racist or have racist ideas because you can't look into someone's heart. But there's no question about it. The vast majority of Republicans are willing to tolerate racism. And I think that's an objective statement when you watch what the president is saying, when you watch what he's tweeting even this morning. If you look at that and you go, yeah, I'm OK with that. Well, then you are willing, by definition, to tolerate racism. So that's where we are at right here. So this complicates the issue of what are these these principles? Look, I think in the push and pull of politics, there there are, you know, I, I do think that there's, you know, the possibility of a center right, center left coalition that will talk about a politics of decency, that will push back against assaults on free, uh, free speech, that will try to be as inclusive as possible, that will point out that, yes, there are tremendous um, overreaches and, and uh, inequalities in terms of the economy, but let's not, let's not completely throw out the concepts of free markets and the ability of people to control their own destiny. So I do think there's also room for, for the voice of, of those who do not believe that every problem needs to be solved by government. You said you're not sure that the Republican Party can even be rescued. No. We saw this in the 1820s when the Whigs collapsed, or the early yep. 1830s, I guess. Are you envisioning something like that? Probably not, because it's so ingrained. I mean, I wish there was something like that that could happen. I think they deserve it, but I don't know. You know, at, at this point, what I'll say probably is that my time horizon is very, very limited. I just feel like the house is on fire right now. We need to put it out, and then we'll worry about the redecorating later. You know, confront right. the crisis that's right in front of us, and then we can debate policy. Well, that crisis goes beyond the Republican Party. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is doing yep. the things that oligarchs do. I mean, the thing that freaks me out the most is that, and I've done, you know, for years throughout the 80s and early 90s, I was doing international relief work all over the world. And, and I've been in a lot of countries that are run by dictators, tin pot dictators. And the main thing that they do once they gain power, however they gain power, is they then convert all of the various departments of government away from their primary function, whether it's, you know, enforcing the law or administering elections or whatever it may be, delivering the mail. They, they change them from that being their primary focus to their primary focus being getting the, the autocrat reelected because these countries still have elections. And I'm watching Donald Trump do that, and I have no, I have no recollection of any president. And I, you know, I, I mean, I've written books about early American history. I'm very familiar mm -hmm. with that, and I've been around. I've been on this planet nearly 70 years. I have no recollection of anybody in my lifetime, or or before that, for that matter, any president ever doing that, trying to no. change the purpose no, of the administrative portions of government. I agree with you completely about that. I just I find it to be really alarming. And the fact if you watch what's going on in Hungary and Poland and other places, you can see this, the creeping populist authoritarianism around the world. And he seems to be following that same pattern. So very much a playbook. So yeah, I... Uh, and, and it's a playbook independent of right or left. I mean, this, is, this was Hugo Chavez's playbook as well. See, this is the problem, of course, of throwing around terms like fascist a lot in American politics, because now we have something that is very fascistic, you know, and you want to say, mm -hmm. okay, we didn't really mean that before. This is the real thing. Right. 
Charlie Sykes on the line with us. We're talking about the Republican Party reinventing itself. And Charlie, I think we're in agreement that uh, this this particular president, you know, represents an existential threat to the to the concept of what, re- mm-hmm. what Democrats typically refer to as democracy and Republicans as a republic. And Madison, of course, used the words interchangeably. Free trade, balanced budgets, character and respect for constitutional rights. Those were the values that you defined as being traditional conservative values. We can debate free trade. That's kind of a separate issue. Yeah. But, but by and large, these are things that I would say are probably American values as well. What are these specific policy points that if the Republican Party is to reinvent itself, I've been calling for years, for example, for progressives to get inside the Democratic Party and take it over. I'm guessing that eventually good former Republicans are going to be calling for you know, good former Republicans to get inside the Republican Party and take it over. What would be the cardinal principles and what do those mean beyond the slogans? You want to pick a couple? Well, well, yeah, I could. I mean, but, uh, you know, I, I think I want to make it clear that my time horizon is very, very narrow here. I feel that I have a hard time thinking past the election. And I think what I mentioned to you before was mm-hmm. say, the, the house is on fire. I want to put the fire out. I'll worry about the redecorating later. I want a party that actually respects the things that it claimed to respect before, like the rule of law, like character, like limitations on the power of government. I want to have a party that restores respect for those constitutional values that that James Madison wrote about, as opposed to simply this tribal, racialist, nativist front that we have right now. And I think it's going to be very difficult to do because, you know, Donald Trump has caused a lot of damage, but he's also a symptom of something that was a pre-existing condition on the right. And I think that you have a media ecosystem on the right that is not interested in those policies and those ideas. It's more interested in power. It's more interested in playing these cards to divide us by race and gender and ethnicity. And I think that somehow we need to get past all of that. Because, I mean, one of the things that I've realized over the last couple of years that I thought that politics was about policy, and it is. But right now, it's more about values. And I can disagree with you on 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 specific policy issues, but I think that you are an honorable, decent, empathetic person. We can do business. And I think that that's kind of the point that that those of us that are anti-Trump conservatives, that we're willing to suspend much of the ideological debate to try to get back to a point where we can actually work together as a system. Because we're in the middle of a national crisis, and I think you and I are roughly the same age. What's really striking about this national crisis is that we are not all in this together. We are not one America. We are two Americas. And I think that I want to see a party that gets back to being a spokesman for fundamental decency that may disagree on specific things, but at least will believe what it says. And right now you have a Republican Party that doesn't seem to believe anything other than the need to bow the knee to the orange God king. Yeah. It seems to me that the cancer at the core of our politics on both sides is big money and that this comes out of the 1976 Buckley decision by the Supreme Court that if a billionaire wants to own a politician or even multiple politicians, that's free speech protected by the First Amendment. And then the Bellotti decision two years later that extended that right to uh, corporations as well, that led to an avalanche of cash that led to Ronald Reagan walking into the White House in 1980. Is that something that the Republican Party could embrace, doing something about the corruption of politics by big money? 
I think it's highly unlikely to come from Republicans, to be honest with you. And I think mm-hmm. that is one of those balancing issues between you know, free speech and money. But I will admit that this is one of the, the things that I really, I've had my eyes open to, which is the, the role of the American oligarchy in driving the political parties. It's not just an imbalance of wealth. It is a dramatic imbalance of political yeah. power. Well, you know, and Jerry Ford embraced be, restricting money in politics. Right. And I think at a certain point, though, it's out of the bag. But there has to be something that needs to be done about it, because a handful of people in this country are driving a lot of the things that we're talking about. And when I was very much part of the conservative movement, I remember saying to people, if people actually knew how it worked, they would Let me put it this way. It's worse than they think it is in terms of the influence and the power and the cloud of the oligarchy by the oligarchy. I mean, you know, a handful of billionaires who determine not just who gets elected, but, you know, who gets to run the think tanks, what is acceptable, what's happened to the conservative media, how many of those publications have become pro-Trumpy because the people writing the checks for them have required them to be. So, Tom, it's worse than you think of. Yeah, I I believe it. Charlie Sykes. Charlie, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate it. Charlie is the editor-at-large at at The Bulwark, thebulwark.com. He's also the host of the podcast, The Bulwark Podcast, and his most recent book, How the Right Lost Its Mind. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Stick around. You're listening to The Tom Hartman Program. And there's a lot of news and a lot for the calls. Also, what do you think about Kamala Harris? I'm very encouraged. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. 
Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hey, Donald Trump has said some pretty outrageous and in many cases just screamingly racist things over the years and very, very much trafficked in racist tropes, saying things like, you know, all Republicans must remember what they're witnessing here, a lynching, speaking about people attacking him for the things he's said, or I'm the least racist person you've ever encountered. I don't have a racist bone in my body, which is something that racists always say. What has happened to the respect for authority, the fear of retribution? Bring back the death penalty and bring back our police, says Donald Trump. You know, why do we need more Haitians? Why are we having people from all these asshole countries come here? We should have more people from places like Norway, says Donald Trump. Anyhow, the whole list of them is uh, posted as a video over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Thanks so much. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, let's pick up some phone calls here. And, you know, we've, we've laid a lot of stuff on the table here through the course of the day. In many ways, Trump is the embodiment of the modern Republican Party, a bigoted, angry, sexist, stupid white man who pretends to be a billionaire. And as if to emphasize this, he's called Kamala Harris, the first African-American and South Asian woman to ever be on a presidential ticket. Nasty. He called her a nasty woman. He called, you know, when Hillary Clinton was the first woman to ever run for president in the United States on a major party platform, he called her nasty. I mean, this is, this is the thing that uh, he, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, I believe she's the first female Speaker of the House, I'm pretty sure, he called her nasty. As they point out over at the top of democraticunderground.com, uh, he doesn't say that about all women. Jelaine Maxwell, you know, who's in prison for child sex trafficking. Trump said, I wish her well. Right. She's not nasty. This is the Republican Party that Donald Trump has reinvented. Broadly, America is rejecting sexism and misogyny. America is rejecting racism and hatred and otherizing. It's not going to stop the Republicans from trying it. Already on Facebook and on Twitter, there are memes out there saying, well, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, is she really an American citizen? You know, her dad was from Jamaica and her mom was from India. Her mom, by the way, this is an amazing story. Her mom came to the United States from India, not as a child, but as a young adult, in order to get her Ph.D. at the University of California. She came to the United States to get her Ph.D., or maybe it was Stanford, whatever college, but 
Aren't these the kind of immigrants that Donald Trump says he wants? Oh, wait a minute. Her skin is darker than Norwegians. I forgot. But they're already doing the birther thing. They're calling her an anchor baby. (laughs) It's like, really? No, she can run for president. She can be president. She was born in the United States. The 14th Amendment says if you're born in the United States, you are a U.S. citizen. And you have to be a U.S. citizen at 35 years old to run for president. But they are going after her already with these racist attacks that Donald Trump used and championed, cheerleaded, you know, spearheaded against Barack Obama for years and years. And I am strongly of the opinion that racism, sexism, and selfishness and greed, the values of the Republican donor class, are yesterday's values. And that America is going to become a much better place in the future. I'm reminded that Hillary Clinton was ahead of Donald Trump four years ago, pretty much exactly as much as Joe Biden is ahead of him right now. And so we can't take anything for granted. That said, if enough of us mobilize, if enough of us vote, if you live in a state that does not have automatic you know, mail voting, like my state of Oregon here. Um, If you live in a state where you have to apply for an absentee ballot, do so now. It is so important that we all vote in this election um, because I think that as long as the Republican Party, the GOP, continues to hang on to these values. I mean, this is at the core of the Republican Party right now. And frankly, I believe it always was or at least all the way back to the 1920s when when the modern Republican Party was birthed with the election of Warren Harding in the election of 1920. And immediately he goes in in 1921 and, you know, within within four years, they had cut the top income tax rate from 91% down to 25%. Uh, That was uh, 1924, I believe, that they did that. And, uh, you know, uh, Harding ran on a platform of deregulating business deregulating the banks, deregulating Wall Street, which they did. And it led to the Roaring Twenties when rich people got insanely rich as the stock market just exploded and working people got screwed. Dean in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. Hey, Dean, what's up? And uh, forgive my mispronunciation of your town if I did. No, that's fine. We're just up here in Canada. We're just kind of wondering why there's no, there's never any consequences for anybody in the government. And and I guess what we're wondering is, like, the protest with George Floyd's killing was a success. So why don't why don't Americans just stand up and uh, and just heavily protest what Donald's doing? Doesn't make sense. To yeah. If you look at country after country that has been taken over by an autocrat or is in the process of being taken over by an autocrat, whether it was Hungary seven or eight years ago, whether it was Poland just a few months ago, a few weeks ago, in fact, whether it was Russia a decade ago, whether it was, I mean, you know, pick your country, right, where a strongman government is coming into power and making protest and opposition a challenge one of the things you find is that typically people don't go into the streets until it reaches the point where it's just like way over the top. And usually that's too late. And that's one of my big concerns, Dean. I, I mean, you've, you have touched on one of my very biggest concerns is that the American people 
are going to wait until Donald Trump has consolidated power or has stolen the election. He is using the instruments of government right now to help him get himself reelected. No other president in the history of the United States has ever done this. It is illegal. It's a violation of the Hatch Act, among other things. But he's using the Justice Department to try to portray Joe Biden and his son as criminals. He's using the intelligence agencies to try to say that China is as big a risk to our elections as Russia, you know, who is openly supporting Trump and actively involved in this. He's using the post office to try to slow down the mail, given that as many as half or two thirds of all the ballots in this election will be coming through the mail. You know, pick your branch of government, right? He's he's using the voice of America. He's politicized the voice of America. He's doing all these things step by step. He, he's taken the, the Customs and Immigration Service and ICE and taken their police powers, their police agencies, and turned them into his own private Gestapo and used them to gas and beat peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C. and Portland, Oregon. All of these things, you know, add up to authoritarianism writ large or add up to stealing an election right in front of us, right before our eyes. And once he's declared the winner, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's the end of America. That's that's what I'm looking at. And Dean, I don't have an easy answer other than trying to wake people the hell up, which is why I do this show every day and why I write the op-eds that I write that you know get published on American websites. Do you see anything I'm missing? And how is Canada... How are you guys in Canada dealing with your own right-wing movements? I mean, you've got right-wingers out in Canada who are, you know, going up against Trudeau in ways that right-wingers here were going up against Obama. It's my opinion, like, Canada is just kind of, we follow a lot of what America does. It seems like there's a lot of copycat-type stuff. And, and I believe the same thing up here, like, the more the right-wing people are just, they're grifters. The same as down there where... You've got your like Matt Gates and your Jim Jordans that, you know, uh, they're just they're just causing problems for the sake of causing problems to enrich themselves. And it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's never any consequences. You know, you look at Nunes and and guys like that. Like, how are they still holding any power? You know, yeah. even at that. Well, level they're in the pocket of a billionaire or or a number of billionaires, and and those billionaires yeah. assure their reelection. And even if they lose their job, like Paul Ryan did, they will be caught with, you know, a million or multi-million dollar a year safety net. There's a huge infrastructure that protects conservatives in this country. There's nothing like it for progressives in this country, sadly. Dean, thank you for the call. And thanks for watching us on YouTube there in in British Columbia. I I appreciate it. It's nice to hear from you. Hassan in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Hassan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I want to talk about the uh, police question and an effort that we can undertake to at least take away uh, one of the weapons that they may try to use in this presidential election. Uh, You had a caller who identified, I think it was eight Senate races to try to flip to the Democratic column. Cited uh, 270toWin.com. And it's a site that I've been looking at for a, a, a different reason, and that's actually house races. And I wanted to offer five House races that if the Democrats win, they would have majority of representatives in a majority of states, and that would take away the 12th Amendment problem of having the Republicans control it if the election goes into the House of Representatives. Yeah, and the the other big variable is if it goes to the House before or after January 3rd when the new House gets sworn in. But back to you. Finish it. Well, it it does go after because 
the House is sworn in on January 3rd, the electoral count happens on January 6th. It is in the Constitution, and that's a, that would be the new Congress that would get to do the counting. Right. And I can identify those uh, five races for you if you'd like. Go for it. Okay, Alaska, which only has one representative, currently a Republican. Kansas's second district, which Kansas currently has three Republicans and one Democrat. It would go to a 2-2 tie, which would at least take one away from the Republicans. Michigan's third and sixth, and Montana's at large as well, one district there. By the way, Michigan is currently tied 7-7, so it would go from a tie to the Democratic majority to a majority. Hassan, thank you. That's that is really some some really smart stuff. And thank you for the research on it. And I hope that anybody in any of those states that you mentioned is their ears are perking up and they're doing something about it. Hassan, thank you. And thanks for listening listening to KTNF. Tom Hartman program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. It's the Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges, to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series, available where all fine books are sold. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Jania in Charlotte, North Carolina. How are you today? What's up? You're on the air. Hey, Tom. Thanks. Okay, so I signed a petition that's going around for the Board of Governors to remove Louis DeJoy. And what my question is to you is, do you think that this could be, is this a feasible way to get him out of office, to have him lose his office? if we do a petition and if so then i wouldn't mind passing on the information right jania i i don't know my understanding is that the postmaster general position was not one that was appointed or regulated by the postal board of governors but was appointed by the president that that was in the legislation that reinvented the post office back in the what was it the 70s i think when it was made a kind of standalone corporation that operated on its own rather than having money flow in and out from the government Mm -hmm. so it may be that that wouldn't have any effect and i would also caution you about petitions online petitions a lot of these online petitions and i have no idea if it's the case of the one that you're talking about but there are people out there who are trying to figure out ways to harvest 
information that they can sell, that they can monetize, particularly email addresses, postal addresses, telephone numbers, and any identifying information, you know, gender, age, uh, economic status, uh, racial status, any of that kind of stuff. And a lot of these petitions, particularly on the right wing, you know, I've seen a bunch of these on the right, where they're clearly simply identity harvesting operations. And then they turn around and sell your information if you sign it. Yeah, sure. They may take the petition. They may submit the petition to somebody. But nobody pays that much attention to online petitions, first of all. And secondly, they may not even submit them. So uh, I would be very cautious about that. But that said, I don't think the Board of Governors has the power to do that. I think it's going to require, you know, Donald Trump himself or Louis DeJoy to be shamed into resigning. And it appears that, you know, he has no intention of, that, of doing that. And neither does Trump. So right. I answer your yeah. question. I was yeah. worried about that, okay. too. Thank you so much. It's just that, you know, you get tired of sitting around feeling like you're being complacent, you know. So I know. It's like, I want to do something. Yeah. Yes. But thank you, Tom. I d- I totally get it. Thank you, Jania. I, I would say that, you know, the more the more effective thing to do would be to call every single one of your elected representatives. You can call both your senators and your member of the House at 202-224-3121. Call, although calling their local offices in your state, which you can easily Google, is typically more effective. But if you want to call their federal office, 202-224-3121. And then, you know, raising hell in social media to the extent that you can. I think that that will probably be far more effective than signing any petitions right now. Catherine in Las Vegas. Hey, Catherine, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind? Thanks. Look at corporate media. Look at what they're doing as far as all the free media towards Trump. But then with the VP process, they've now framed it as... Biden picks a black woman. And why does the corporate media care so much about the VP pick? Because they're scared to death of Elizabeth Warren. Because when you look at the economy as a whole and the fact that we're headed into a depression with every metric except for the two-year mark, whoever structures the recovery is going to change the structure of our entire economy, whether it be wages, whether it be income inequality, whether it be racial justice, for the next 30 years. And because we've been consolidating all of this wealth during this last couple months of recession and 100,000 businesses shut down. So if they control the VP and they control the monetary policy for the recovery, then they further expand their stranglehold on government. I agree. And there's just a hell of a lot of lazy journalism going on, Catherine. I was listening to NPR, you know, not just the local station, but this was the whole national thing. And and the guy was reading the news, you know, at the top or bottom of the hour, I forget which. And he said, you know, President Trump has signed four executive orders, including one that would give $400 to every American who's unemployed. The Democrats are threatening to sue, saying it's unconstitutional. Well, Talk about a, a pile of, you know, a stinking pile of BS. Trump, number one, did not sign an executive order saying that everybody should get $400. That was actually a memorandum. Number two, it doesn't say everybody should get $400. It says everybody should get $300. Number three, that money is coming out of FEMA's $44 billion surplus right now, and it would be exhausted in less than four weeks if all the states took it. And Whether the Democrats are going to say, no, no, you can't. I mean, the way that NPR presented it, it was like Trump is trying to give you money and the Democrats are upset about that. And they're going to try and stop it, you know, which is just a complete screaming, flaming lie. 
And this level of egregious sloppiness that I'm seeing across the media, whether it's the corporate media on TV and radio or whether it's, uh, you know, NPR and, and my local newspaper, for that matter, is really distressing. And I don't disagree with you that the, that the media are playing the role of bullies to a large extent and that, and that this whole thing with the VP pick, you know, we, we started out with, you know, what's she going to look like and what does she wear? I mean, that, this kind of all this kind of sexist crap has been dumped on a lot of these women already. And people criticizing Stacey Abrams' weight, for God's sake. I mean, you know, it's just, it's like, when does this stop? No man has ever been criticized for this stuff. And, and that's and, what the you know, media chooses to talk about instead of discussions about whose policy is the best to get us out of the recession, whose policy exactly. is the best for black America, whose policy is the best for the pandemic. And instead, the media, while saying women are treated differently, are focusing exclusively on race, appearance, ambition, etc. Right. And ambition is just code for uppity woman, you know, which is more misogyny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. It is just so wrong. I, you know, I don't know how to say it beyond that. But, you know, thank you for the call, Catherine. Spot on. And very well said. Alan in Staten Island, New York. Hey, Alan, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for the call. You know, I'm, I looked up online, and I'm sure, or in a book, and I'm sure you know everyone. Common signs of psychopathy, common signs of sociopathy, narcissistic sociopath. There are 19 in there. He fits every one of those. Yet you can't tell yeah. that to a supporter. They don't want to hear this. But it's it's very simple to read these things and just put him in that uh, in that category. And if you ever, from past elections, I know I never, oh, this man's running Republican, Democrat. All right, I didn't like Republican normally. But uh, if he wins, I, I didn't go crazy. This is a whole different situation that I think many people have to be instructed on thinking a little bit. And here's the thing that we need to be remembering going forward, Alan. Most high-functioning sociopaths, and they're overrepresented in, in certain categories, CEOs, police officers. I mean, there's, there's a couple of cat, uh, salespeople. There's a couple of categories where high-functioning sociopaths actually do well. Most high-functioning sociopaths are smart enough to know how to pretend that they're not sociopaths. They can fake empathy. They can pretend that they care. They know that it's appropriate to do that. They know what to say and do, even if they don't actually feel it. Donald Trump is not smart enough to do that. But Tom Cotton is. There's no shortage, among others, there's no shortage of Republican people that I believe are sociopaths or, or, or show those characteristics who would, who in public office are able to conceal that or hide it or, or you know, uh, overwhelm any, any analysis of it with other stuff. And that, I'm really worried about 2024. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Because what Donald Trump has done is he has shown any future Republican sociopath exactly how to deconstruct America, how to destroy this republic. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader. This particular chapter is an excerpt from my book, Threshold. This is from page 312, titled Sociopathic Paychecks. And it starts out with a quote from The Little Prince, 1943. I know a planet where there is a certain red-faced gentleman. He has never smelled a flower. He has never looked at a star. And all day he says over and over, just like you, I am busy with matters of consequence. And that makes him swell up with pride. But he is not a man, he is a mushroom. Okay, to the book. Americans have long understood how socially, politically, and economically destabilizing are huge disparities in wealth. For this reason, the U.S. military and the U.S. civil service have built into them systems that ensure that the highest paid federal official, including the president, will never earn more than 20 times the salary of the lowest paid janitor or army private. Most colleges have similar programs in place with the ratios ranging from 10 to 1 to 20 to 1 between the president of the university and the guy who mows the grass. From the 1940s through the 1980s, this was also a general rule of thumb in most of corporate America. When CEOs took more than their fair share, they were restrained by their boards so that the money could be used instead by the company for growth and to open new areas of opportunity. The robber baron J.P. Morgan himself suggested that nobody in a company, including his company, should earn more than 20 times the lowest paid employee. Although he exempted stock ownership from that equation, he owned most of the stock. During the greed is good era of the 1980s, something changed. CEO salaries began to explode at the same time that the behavior of multinational corporations began to change. When Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, a mergers and acquisition mania filled the air. And as big companies merged to become bigger, they shed off redundant parts. The result was a series of waves of layoffs as entire communities were decimated, divorce and suicide rates exploded, and America was introduced to the specter of the armed, disgruntled employee. Accompanying the consolidation of wealth and power of these corporations was the very real redefinition of employment, from providing a living wage to people in the community to a variable expense on a profit and loss sheet. Companies that manufactured everything from clothing to television sets discovered that there was a world full of people willing to work for 50 cents an hour or less. Throughout America, factories closed and a building boom commenced among the Asian tigers of Taiwan, South Korea, and Thailand. The process has become so complete that of the millions of American flags bought and waved after the World Trade Center disaster, 9-11, most were manufactured in China. Very, very, very few things are still manufactured in the United States outside of the defense industry, weapons. And it wasn't unthinking, unfeeling corporations that took advantage of the changes in the ways the Sherman Antitrust Act and other laws were enforced by Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush Jr. administrations. It took a special type of human person. In his manuscript, Toys, War, and Faith, Democracy in Jeopardy, Major William C. Gladish suggests that this special breed of person is actually a rare commodity and thus highly valuable. He notes that corporate executives make so much money because of simple supply and demand. There are, of course, many people out there with the best education from the best school, raised in upper-class families who know how to play the games of status, corporate intrigue, and power. The labor pool would seem to be quite large, but Gladish points out there's another and more demanding requirement to meet. They must be willing to operate in a runaway economic and financial system that demands the exploitation of humanity and the environment for short-term gain. This is a disturbing contradiction to their children's interest and their own intelligence, education, cultural appreciation, and religious beliefs. 
It's the second requirement, Gladish notes, that drastically reduces the number of quality candidates for corporations to pick from. Most people in this group are not willing to forsake God, family, and humanity to further corporate interests in a predatory financial system. For the small percentage of people left, the system continues to increase salaries and benefit packages to entice the most qualified and ruthless to detach themselves from humanity and become corporate executives and their hired guns. One of the questions often asked when the subject of CEO pay comes up is, what would a person like William McGuire or Rex Tillerson, the CEOs of United Healthcare and ExxonMobil, respectively, possibly do to justify a $1.7 billion paycheck or a $400 million retirement bonus? It's an interesting question. If there's a free market for labor or CEOs, you'd think there'd be a lot of competition for the jobs. And a lot of people competing for the positions would drive down the pay. All the United Healthcare stockholders would have to do to avoid paying more than a billion dollars to McGuire is find somebody to do the same CEO job for a half billion dollars. And all they'd have to do to save even more is find somebody to do the job for a mere hundred million dollars. Or maybe even somebody who'd work the necessary 60-hour weeks for only one million dollars. So why is executive pay so high? I've examined this question with both my psychotherapist hat on and my amateur economist hat on, and only one rational answer presents itself. CEOs in America make as much money as they do because there really is a shortage of well-trained sociopaths. The book is, ultimately, it's from Threshold, but it's in the Tom Hartman reading. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, let's see here. Colleen in Moore Park, California. Hey, Colleen, what's on your mind today? Hi. Well, I have a question that I haven't heard anybody else ask, and it is, why is it that those people running for the office of the presidency of the United States don't have to pass a security clearance? Hmm. I think the reason why is the same reason that we don't have a law requiring, you know, certain types of disclosures or, uh, for example, a mental health exam or anything like that. And that is that, just to play this out, Colleen, imagine that what you are suggesting was actually the law, that Joe Biden would have to pass a security test before he could be certified as a candidate for, uh, for the Democratic Party to run for president. And that security test, of course, would be executed by the executive branch of the current administration. It would be done by presumably the Justice Department or one of the security agencies, which are firmly in the control of Donald Trump. So Biden submits his paper for the security test. The Trump administration comes back and says, "Yeah, we don't think the, we think you're a security risk. You can't run for president. What do you do then? I don't know. It seems to me yeah. that that's that's always the fatal flaw with with requiring a candidate to do any particular thing is who is going to enforce the requirement. If you have a government that is sliding toward fascism, that requirement could allow them to to keep out the most viable candidates and only allow in the weakest candidates. I mean, I love the idea, Colleen. You know, I love your your concern. I think that you are spot on that. Well, we know now, you know, Donald Trump has been a security concern from the get go. He's in bed with a whole bunch of of oligarchs and autocrats all over the world from, you know, Mohammed bin Salman to Vladimir Putin to I mean, pick you to Modi. And I mean, pick your tyrant right or your you know want to be strongman or actual strongman but when we try to do things using the f- power of government we have to be very 
very careful because, you know, government can be a very blunt instrument. Colleen, thank you for the call. Th- keep thinking, right? Keep thinking. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Brian in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind? Hey, I've just been hearing about, you know, the mail slowing down. And, you know, I've heard that yeah. people, their mail-in ballots they have to fill out, they're not getting them on time or they're, they're really delayed. And then they go to mail them in and then that's delayed and they're, they're not meeting the elections. I actually heard about someone who missed an election. Even, like, waiting a while, like, I've heard, like, of a month delay. And, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your ideas, but I do have a suggestion I just wanted to air. Maybe suggest people only do the drop-off, but then have the backup Mm -hmm. plan, if they can't do that, to go in person. And I know it's not ideal with COVID, but, like, we got to get Trump out of there. Yeah, I agree. The problem that you're going to have, Brian, is that there's a number of states, with the exception of New York State, which is still requiring a, basically a doctor's slip, an excuse to get a mail-in ballot. All the other states that, that make it very, very hard to get an absentee ballot are red states. They're controlled by Republican governors and Republican secretaries of state. And, you know, many of them are not setting up drop boxes and they're not making it legal or possible for people to walk a ballot into a, into a polling station. So, you know, it gets real, real problematic. This is why we need national standards. This is why Congress passed H.R. 1 back in uh, February of uh, 2019. And it's also why Mitch McConnell refuses to take it up in the Senate, because it would fix this problem that you've identified, Brian. Brian, thanks for the call. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Hey, my new book is out, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. We're having a coronavirus-safe book tour. I'll be at Powell's virtual bookstore event in conversation with David Corton, Tuesday, August 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Go to powells.com and get your tickets for the live stream event. And on Friday, September 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, I'll be at a Town Hall Seattle virtual event. And you can get your tickets for that live stream event at townhallseattle.org. There are also links at TomHartman.com. I'll be taking you from the birth of America through FDR to the Reagan Revolution and today. In the foreword of my book, Ralph Nader says, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. So be sure to go to TomHartman.com and sign up for one of these two great virtual book signings, Powell's in Portland and Town Hall Seattle. Don't miss it and sign up now. Tag, you're it. So in our geeky science uh, today, this is an amazing story, uh, just uh, amazing. You know, one of the things that for me was a giant, almost a spiritual revelation, a spiritual insight when I was a teenager, as I recall, maybe even younger than that, was when I learned that outside of hydrogen and arguably helium, but mostly hydrogen, which apparently the universe was filled with at the beginning, right? Right. Outside of that, 
Every other element has been created by being burned inside a star, by hydrogen burning itself into helium and then, and then basically merging nuclei fusion. Nuclear fusion is what it's called. You know, taking a whole bunch of very light elements and jamming them together and coming up with a heavier element. And we know, you know, I mean, literally every element, gold, you know, copper, and, and we're able to watch stars explode or sometimes see stars and say, oh, well, that, that one's heavy in this particular element. But the one element that they've been really unable to exactly figure out which stars, how and where and when it's created is calcium. The stuff in our bones, our teeth. I mean, you know, look at your teeth in the mirror. Look at somebody else's teeth. What you're seeing is something that was made in a star. But what star and where and how? Nobody knew until just a few months ago. And the reason why was because an amateur astronomer a fellow by the name of Joel Shepard noticed a burst of light in a spiral galaxy called Messier 100. It's 55 million light years away through his personal amateur telescope. And he spotted that there was a bright orange dot in this galaxy, which could be the beginning of a supernova, of a massive explosion of a star. And so he flagged this on the amateur astronomy bulletin boards, and it got picked up by professional astronomers in fact, when uh, Jacobson Galan, the author of this study, said observing supernova within hours of an explosion is the new it thing in our field right now. And what they found was that this supernova was blowing out, majority of what it was blowing out as a star exploded was calcium. And it turns out that uh, this is, uh, Jacobson Gillen said, calcium-rich supernova produced just enough additional calcium in the explosion to provide an efficient means of emitting photons that in turn release heat. He said, nature chooses the path of least resistance and calcium provides that path when enough of it is present in a supernova. This is supernova 2019 EHK. It emitted the most calcium ever observed in a supernova event. More than 70 scientists around the world collaborated on this. He said it wasn't just calcium rich. It was the richest of the rich. So, but we are literally, I think this, I think this was an old Joni Mitchell song line. You know, we are star stuff, right? We are, everything you see around you, came out of a star, out of a, a dying star, an exploding star. Isn't that amazing? Anyhow, our geeky science for the day. Michelle in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Michelle, what's on hey, your mind Hey, Tom, when you think about the quagmire that Trump would be in if he was not reelected, all the legal stuff that's against him and everything else, you know, sexual stuff, he cannot afford to be a, the loser. And I am absolutely pessimistic about the Democrats winning. But when Trump sees that he's going to lose, he's going to take his millions and put them in a suitcase, and he's going to figure out some country that will take him in. It might be Saudis or South America somewhere. And he's going to claim that he committed suicide. Somehow he's going to disappear because he cannot afford to lose. You know this. Right? I don't think it's so. Gonna, no, I, I think I think he can actually, Michelle. I, theories that think Hitler did that, but that's what Trump has to do. 
Yeah, he's had over 3,000 lawsuits against him for not paying yeah. bills and things. Right now you've got oh, yeah. cities all over America that, that to which the Trump campaign owns, owes millions of dollars for security. He's stiffing them. He's not paying the police. He, he claims he loves the police, but he's screwing <laughs> the police financially in town after town after town. I think that he thinks that he can simply litigate things forever because that's what he's done for the last 60 years. He can simply, if he leaves office and starts his own television network or buys One American News or something like that and <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, becomes a media star. But it's starting to get real. You know, E. Jean Carroll is a credible journalist and writer, and she, nobody has ever accused her of being, you know, any kind of a nutcase or anything. And 20 years ago, he raped her in a fitting room at one of the high-end stores in New York City. And she kept the dress with his semen on it after he raped her. And yeah. she now has sued him for defamation because he called her a liar. And the court said, Trump, you have to provide DNA to be examined and compared with the DNA from that dress that E. Jean Carroll has. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that he will refuse to do that. And he'll say, sue me. And I mean, you know, it was just a, a lower court that said this. Uh, it was a federal court, but it was a lower court. And he's going to try and take it up to the Supreme Court. And that's a year long process. And he's just going to drag this stuff out as much as he can. But whether the walls are actually closing in or not, Michelle, I'm skeptical. And I think Trump is very skeptical. He, he believes in his own infallibility and immortality. So it's going to be a tough one. But I get your point. I absolutely get your point. I think it's one of the reasons why he's struggling so hard. I think it's one of the reasons why his kids are struggling so hard, too, to keep him in the White House, because they know that the gravy train will end you know, when he's out of the White House, or they believe it may end. And they may be subject to prosecution. I mean, Don Jr. and Ivanka almost got prosecuted for stuff around the, the building that he had in Soho, where they were making, you know, false claims to people. They were committing real estate fraud and bank fraud, or at least that was the allegation. And, you know, that stuff might come back to haunt them, although probably a lot no, of it is beyond the statute of limitations. packing a suitcase and going to Saudis. Well, nothing. And I would say good riddance if that's what happens. I have no problem with that. And his wife and his son have dual citizenship with Slovenia. So, you know, he may end up there. God only knows. Although I'm guessing that they're going to try to escape him rather than just America. Michelle, thank you for the call. Ray in uh, Astoria. Hi, Tom. Is there a way that our state's attorney, uh, Oregon, uh, or other states together maybe could sue LaJoy for interfering with our right to vote by messing with the mail service? Yeah, anybody can sue for anything, broadly speaking. The question is, will that lawsuit be successful? Uh, any lawsuits brought right now against the executive branch, and DeJoy is part of the executive branch, they will have to go through three levels of courts, or two levels of courts, before they get to the Supreme Court, the third level. And that's going to take six months to a year, and we are not six months to a year out from the election. So I am not optimistic that that is a path that we can or should follow. Ray, thank you for the call. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow and, you know, more of the ongoing drama of life in America during a pandemic with a madman in the White House. It's it's mind boggling. But here we are. We're living in one of the most historic times in history. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it and be good to yourself and the people around you. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 